Welcome to the Barry Sachs Show. Thanks for joining me on the Barry Sachs Show. I'm Barry Cockroft, and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We will be exploring the stories behind these great musicians with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure, and please subscribe for a new episode each week. The details of each episode, including a transcript, the show notes, and any links, can be found at barrysax.com. Branford Marsalis has stayed the course. From his early acclaim as a saxophonist, bringing new energy and new audiences to the jazz art, he's refined and expanded his talents and his horizons as a musician, composer, band leader, and educator, a 21st century mainstay of artistic excellence. A growing fascination with jazz as he entered college gave him the basic tools to obtain his first major jobs, with trumpet legend Clark Terry and alongside his brother Winton in Art Blakey's legendary Jazz Messengers. When the brothers left to form the Winton Marsalis Quintet, the world of uncompromising acoustic jazz was invigorated. Branford formed his quartet in 1986 and, with a few minor interruptions in the early years, has sustained the unit as his primary means of expression. Branford has not confined his music to the quartet context, however. Classical music inhabits a growing portion of Branford's musical universe. A frequent soloist with classical ensembles, Branford has become increasingly sought after as a featured soloist with such acclaimed orchestras as the Chicago, Detroit, Dusseldorf and North Carolina symphonies and the New York Philharmonic. Branford's screen credits include the original music for Mo Better Blues and acting roles in School Days and Throw Mama from the Train. Branford has also shared his knowledge as an educator, forming extended teaching relationships with Michigan State, San Francisco State and North Carolina Central Universities and conducting workshops at sites throughout the United States and the world. As for other public stages, Branford spent a period touring with Sting, collaborated with The Grateful Dead and Bruce Hornsby, and served as musical director of The Tonight Show, starring Jay Leno. Some might gauge Branford Marsalis's success by his numerous awards, including three Grammys, and, together with his father and brothers, his citation as a jazz master by the National Endowment for the Arts. To Branford, however, these are only way stations along what continues to be one of the most fascinating and rewarding journeys in the world of music. Please welcome my guest today, Branford Marsalis. Now, I was a bit curious about how you got started inside of a musical family. I think the reason that we are musicians is because we grew up in a musical city, which superseded all, the, all of the stuff at home. Uh, if you ever watch, uh, you know, in, 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 in America, we make these, you know, coming of age movies. They're either high school of, you know, kids going to high school, kids going to football. They're usually comedies. And in the majority of those fi films, there's a scene where somebody is doing something to someone who plays in the marching band. You know, there's this perpetual uh, perception in the United States that other than an electric guitar, or drum set, playing an instrument is decidedly not cool. But in my city, it's the coolest thing. It's cooler than playing sports. Uh, New Orleans is an incredible musical town. And when you're 10 years old and there are 75 kids who are your age who are playing instruments, 
it's really cool to play an instrument. It's, you know, it's like we have that funny, we have a funny accent. We have a funny way of talking down there because of the, the, the confluence of languages, you know, Indian language, African languages, French, Spanish. So it's just a, like a melting pot of all these sounds. So uh, when we talk down there, the words get a little longer like that. And we say, yeah, bruh, which is short for brother. So they used to say, yeah, little bruh. I see y'all out there playing that music. That's great. Y'all keep that up. Now, in other cities, they say, well, what are you going to do for a living? It's like a completely different mindset. Well, you know, because I would, you know, when are you going to get a real job? But there are ridiculous amounts of musicians in New Orleans, and they all work. They don't get paid a lot. They don't seem to care about that. I mean, they love what they do. It seems now in a lot of places, music is an extra it's not part of the culture anymore. It's something you go and see or you go and do. Well, it's, it's, it's what I like to say is that most cultures do not differentiate between music that is considered entertainment and music that we would consider not entertainment. Uh, yeah, they just think of us all. Entertainers are the same. So, you know, Bruno Mars and you and I are the same. And they're like, well, why do you guys, or why are you not so as popular as Bruno Mars? I mean, you guys do the same thing. I mean, it's just, and when you have a culture like that, yeah, it's it's hard, you know, to crack anything. But if you, if you, if you, well, you've never been to New Orleans. When you get there, you'll see. There is a, a, a delineation in a way. Uh, we have a lot of musicians, a lot of good ones. Do you think that something could replicate? Could it? No, it's just, it's, it's a weird place. It's a weird place that way. Uh, in the United States, we're the only city that has our own things. Uh, we have a, an American football team there, a gridiron team uh, called the Saints, and they were playing the Indianapolis Colts for the championship in 2009. And I had some friends from Indianapolis saying, you know, what are you guys going to do when you lose the game? Because they were favored to win. And I said, well, we'll do the same thing that we do if we win the game. We're going to go out. We're going to hang at the bars. We're going to drink our drinks. We're going to eat our food. We're going to sing our songs. And I said, well, what songs do you have in Indianapolis? If the Colts win, what are you going to sing? We Are the Champion by Queen. How original. Mm -hmm. And he wrote back, man, that was kind of harsh because we do. We have our own songs. We have our own rhythms. We have our own things. We have, we have a culture that is truly unique. In, 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 in fair, you know, in most cities in America, I guess the, the original food is like the hamburger and it's not even from the United States. Uh, but we have uh, all sorts of cooking dishes, Creole dishes, we have drinks, we have animals that we consume that are only there and you don't see them in other places. It's an incredible city. So you think the, the cultural aspect of just bleeds into the music. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, it's, everything is intertwined there. Uh, a lot of people call it the birthplace of jazz. That's probably true. Yeah, it's definitely true. But New Orleanians are not jazz fanatics. It's just over there somewhere. But if they're having a party, they'll hire a, a jazz band, a brass band. Say, oh, let's hire one of those brass bands to play at our event. Other people would say, let's hire an 80s band or a 90s pop band. 
never a a, who, who, a, bra a jazz band, a brass band with guys soloing and that whole thing. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, you know, if the, in the, at these, at these professional sporting events, we have brass bands and we have just have a different thing. Uh, they, uh, the National Basketball Association, they play these all-star games in the middle of the season and they always go to different cities. They decided to go to New Orleans and they hired me to put together a halftime show. And he was so used to the pop music way. He says, well, I'd like to hear the music first. So what they usually do is send him one of their recordings from their record. And they say, great, we like this. Can you make it four minutes? So then they call the producers and they edit the song so it's four minutes and they send a track over and the singer sings to the track. So he says, well, I need music. I said, there, there's no music to send you. And he goes, well, well, man, this is how we did it when Beyonce did it in Houston. I said, it has no, that has no bearing. This is, these are real musicians. I mean, you're talking about a singer who sings to a track. I mean, these are real musicians. I can send you their recordings, but you want a pre-programmed edited version of the song, which you will not be getting because the musicians are going to show up and perform it live. And as we neared the day, and I was traveling, I was in Europe. I said, I, I don't have time for this. You know, I just, and as the date neared, he became more and more manic. And he says, you know, you know, I'm going to lose my job for this. I said, you need to relax. So we called the rehearsal he says, I set up a time for you guys to rehearse the show. Three hours. I said, we won't need three hours. We'll need 45 minutes. I have a tea time in two hours, so I'm not going to stay here for three hours. So we get there at nine. The guys are late. Oh, the guys are late. I said, they'll be here and roll up in 15 minutes. They roll up literally 9.15. I said, how long do you want this thing? You know, Three minutes here, we want this, there's a break, there's talking, two minutes there. I said, great, mapped it out. And I said, you know, these are all, I said, the Kermit Ruffins, do that song, going back to New Orleans, do that. They had a hit record called Do What You Wanna. It looks like, let's do Do What You Wanna. There's a young man, and a lot of people know him now, his name is Trombone Shorty. At the time, nobody knew who he was. I said, Shorty, when they do the vamp and do what you wanna, you come out, you play for eight bars or 16, we'll time it out, we'll figure it out. And we talked about it for about 20, 25 minutes. And I told the guy, you ready? He goes, yeah, the music starts. It goes on from beginning to end without a hitch. And he just does, he's, he's gobsmacked. I don't believe what I just saw. I said, man, this is real music. This is not produced. This is, this is real musicians. They do this all the time. This is what they do for a living. They don't go to the gym and hire somebody to write the music for them. These are real musicians. And it, it was really successful. It ran off really well. And uh, it's just funny, the, the perception of the rest of the country when it comes to what music is. It never really involves people playing instruments live. It's always, be, you know, and I guess a lot of that is like the, the hip hop and what it is, is guys reading poetry to tracks, to pre-recorded tracks. So to a lot of people, they don't even know what, what instruments are anymore. So... Being from New Orleans is is is, is, is a great thing for me. I, I'm so grateful to have uh, grown up there. So, if culture influences music, what happens in a place where that culture is absent? Like culture is a funny thing. Um, I guess it's like the the American guy. This is a good example. The American guy who 
fell in love with Japan and he moved there. This is 30 years ago. And at that time, the Japanese were not allowing anybody who was not full-blooded Japanese to have a Japanese passport. It was this very rigorous and arduous process to become a Japanese citizen. That included them spying in your house to make sure you're speaking Japanese. And he was one of the first Americans to actually get a Japanese passport. And when he talks, when he speaks English, his English is flawless, but all of his mannerisms are Japanese. And he was not born there. So if a person is keen and astute and aware and actually uses their ears to hear and uses uh, their eyes to see, then it is possible to uh, assimilate into cultures other than the one that you naturally come from. Too many times we prefer to try to invent a paradigm for that. That is why we have the phrase book. Uh, that is why we have in the United States, foreign language is taught through conjugation, which is gradable, which is why they do it. But it ultimately does not achieve the goal of learning how to speak any language at all, because language is the extension of a culture and the ground and the soil and the people. So if you were really intent on having people learn a language, then you would just speak the language to them till they figure it out. You would make them watch movies that are in the language that you're dealing with. And, but we, we don't, we give, we, we teach conjugation. So I walk, I am walking, he walks, he is walking, we are walking. Very good. I am on the steps. She is on the steps. I mean, Who talks like that? In any language. I've never used that phrase, you know, donde esta Susana? Susan is in La Cocina. I learned that in 1975. I've been to Spanish-speaking countries multiple times, and no one has ever asked me where Susanna is. And if they did, I'm certain she would not be in the kitchen. So we made jokes about it in high school. Like, what, what is this? This is ridiculous. Nobody talks like this. But I didn't have any concept of what the solution would be for that until I started to travel and meet people who spoke Spanish. They said, man, just hang around, man. Like this, this Puerto Rican guy named Ivan, when I was at the Berkeley College of Music, I started speaking. He goes, oh man, you got the gringo book. We don't talk that way. He says, look, I got guys coming over to the room man. you should just hang out and listen to us talking and you'll understand how we do it. And they, start, they brought drums. They started playing the drums and singing songs. And I was like, that is like where I come from, except it's in the Caribbean. So I started to realize that what New Orleans actually is, is it's not one of the southernmost cities in the United States, but one of the northernmost cities in the Caribbean. And it's amazing how similar those, those cultures are. So uh, it's possible. I mean, I've done it. This is what I do. Uh, I regret not speaking another language. And the reason that I don't is because I've never, uh, I've always had kids at bad times. So uh, I was never able to just pick up my things and move to a different place and sit there because in, in two years I'd, I'd have it because I understand, you know, I, I'd even do it. You know, I like practicing French. And so um, I, I used to listen to radio broadcasts on the internet in, in French and imitate words and 
watch French shows, you lose interest after a while because there's no reward. Is this an investment and you can't speak it to anyone or can't speak it anywhere? So after about six, seven weeks, you're like, why am I doing this? You know, it's, it's, it's pointless. But what I got from it is that when I do use speak French words, they always assume that my French is good because my accent is good. I don't say words the way Americans. Yeah, you, you, well, you practice it. I remember that R sound, you know, like derriere, you know, I practiced that for weeks. Walking around the house going air, 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 Pierre, not Pierre. And it took a while. And then when I do it, if I'm around French, it comes back really quickly. So if you can assimilate some language, then you can possibly assimilate some culture. Musically? Oh, absolutely. It's, 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 it's easy. It's hard as hell, but it's easy. I mean, the, the process is simple and the process is arduous. Uh, when I decided in my early 40s that I was really going to try to just start learning how to play classical music, um, the purpose of that was uh, once you become good at something, like jazz or, you know, say like pop music or whatever this means. When's the last time you heard a pop musician say, oh, I got two years off, I'm going to my singing coach. And they're going to go to a beach. They're successful, they're rich. They're not going to practice. I mean, you hear these old bands from the 70s and they sound terrible. And the fans don't mind because they're not music people. They don't hear those little minutiae the way we hear it. They just want to revel in what their childhood was. So the songs are all out of tune. They're missing stuff. Nobody cares, but it drives me bananas. It drives me crazy. And in jazz, where you have far less popularity, you have these excellent old musicians who are starting or in a decline. And I mean, they, it starts in your 50s, where the only time they pick up their instruments is when they have a gig. Because how long can you sit around? How many years can you sit around practicing, you know, these vertical ideas that are really the antithesis of improvisation, but you hear musicians play them constantly. These are linear patterns and scales that correspond. It's like when you listen to jazz people who play like that in the practice room, they basically are playing the same things that they're going to play on stage. There's no, uh, you know, been, like right now what I'm doing is uh, I realize that if I'm going to double tongue well, I have to do this every day. So I get to the, a concert early, a jazz concert early, and I work on double-tonguing for half an hour. There's no benefit for me unless I happen to play Tamazi, then there's a great benefit. So what classical music has done for me is forced me outside of whatever my comfort zone is and made me address inherent weaknesses that come from the style of music that you choose. Because I guess as if you're improvising, you choose what you play. If you're... Well, theoretically, <laughs> that's not really what happens. If you're playing a composed piece, you have to play what's there. Well, the thing about the way that most jazz guys play, so much of it is already worked out in their minds before they play it, which is really not what improvisation is supposed to be, but it's what human nature does. So it's the repetition of things you practiced. And, and, and when you listen to it, it sounds meticulously prepared. Because it is, it's not spontaneous at all. So there must be a, a way though to practice, but not practice in a way that then dominates. Well, what you have to have is you have to have a massive sound vocabulary. 
what most modern musicians have are massive harmonic vocabularies. And harmony is all the same. I mean, harmony should not be at the top of any list. Melody should be at the top of the list. Harmony should be third. Melody, rhythm, harmony. But in jazz studies, it's harmony, harmony, and harmony. And all those things sound like each other. Harmony does not have tonal color, tonal characteristics. It doesn't play in front of a beat or behind a beat. So there's all these things that you learn from like listening to Louis Armstrong that you subconsciously learn. Uh, the value of a repeated note in a certain situation, how to really create tension by playing behind the beat, how to hold a really long note going through sequence of chord changes. And if you listen to modern musicians, they don't do any of those things. They play eighth notes or 16th notes that correspond to the system that is in front of them. And they play vertical scales, chords, I mean, vertical sc chord scales or patterns that correspond. So the music is highly efficient, but it's not, it, it, it has no ability to persuade people who are not already enamored with the system. So how do those people develop their own identity then? Well, they have, that's their identity. But it's the same as everyone else's identity. Precisely. That system. And, 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 they, and, and it's funny how you have people who, like the definition for genius in modern music or innovation is all these musicians who play, you know, um, music with, you know, uh, a, a very vague backbeat. It's like a very soft backbeat. Uh, ostinato bass lines, odd meters, and vertical solos on those situations. Uh, and that music never really goes anywhere. If you listen to music in the 30s, the jazz always had a propulsion, a forward motion to it that is completely absent now. And that, the, the musicians have rejected that. I don't know why. Uh, what they are rejecting it for is ultimately unsuccessful because... Uh, you're basically playing to other musicians, audiences have walked away from it. So I think what it is, is a kind of doubling down on one's own personality or culture, where I've always thought of the challenge of music was to be like a chameleon and to be multiple people. The way actors can, good actors become multiple people. They don't settle in and say, well, I'm only a cowboy. <laughs> You know, if I'm, oh, you want me to play a psychopath? Yeah, I got to do some research on that. That's cool. I can do that. I just take my cowboy hat off. Yeah, <laughs> take it off and, you know, put on a ski mask or whatever it is and, and develop a character. And I studied uh, acting in, in theater in high school. And that was one of the things that uh, was important about, about the roles was that you had to try which, whatever limited skills you have to develop a character. They tell you what your person is. They're angry, they're funny, they're gregarious, they're sinister, they're licentious. It just depends on what it is. And you have to figure out what that means. What does it mean to be a liar? What does it mean to be disingenuous? At 15, how the hell do you know? But you're still expected to create something. And usually what you create is a caricature of something. You know? So, you know, James Cagney is a villain. So you go, yeah, see, yeah, yeah. It's just, but so what, what it really does did for me though, it, it presented me with the idea that in acting, you succeed by becoming someone else while still being you. So it's almost like you split your brain into thirds or fourths. And when I started playing music, I said, well, that's kind of like the same thing. 
because the kind of tone I use when I'm playing R&B or popular music is not the tone you use when you play jazz and certainly not the tone you use playing classical music. So I started thinking the best way for me to learn music is to just listen to recordings of people who do it well because the recordings are concrete. Music theory is theoretical. That's why they don't call it law. It's not music law, it's music theory. And it will always be music theory. It's just purely theoretical. And the things that move human beings in their experience with music can't be taught through harmony. I mean, if a person, if you play a piece and people be become moved by the piece, there is something in the sound that reminded them of something of love or love lost or melancholy or a loved one. And they come up and they tell you, you know, you played this piece and I thought of my mother. They don't say you played this piece. And when you played that super, super Locrian scale, I suddenly thought of my mother. Can you play that scale again? I mean, they don't know music that way. They don't care about any of that. So if you've got, if you've got jazz musicians playing for other jazz musicians in the audience, do you find the same thing in classical music? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes. we're, we're in an exceptional week because it is a meeting of saxophonists. But do you find in classical saxophone that we spend too much time playing for each other? I think that much like in the jazz community, there are people where that's the goal. Like the goal is to play at WSC or at NASA. Like that's the whole, I'm, my whole year. And I find it different for teachers because they have dedicated their lives to instructing young people. They don't get to go on the road. They don't get to do these things. They, they're teachers. And that's one of the reasons why I always feel funny about playing at these conventions because there's a finite amount of positions. And every time I play, except for the role that I had this week, which is you have people who are established professors and players and they ask me to join with their students or join, you're bumping other people off. Like I would love to play on one of those opening shows with the concert, but you're always bumping off, you're bumping off other people who are, this is, they, this is the thing that they get to do. So I'm, I'm really mindful of that, I, you know. Your opportunities seem to, in classical music, seem to be developing further and further. And I've seen lately you're doing more and more orchestral appearances. Well, that was never really part of the plan. <laughs> uh, other people used it for whatever reasons it could be beneficial to them. Uh, I think one of the reasons it started to happen in the United States was a. Uh, in, in, in the United States for the first 150 years, wasn't, it wasn't that long actually, for the first 90 to 100 years of uh, classical music being in the United States, it was the provenance of, of wealthy people and corporations. I mean, Texaco is a big uh, oil company and they sponsored the Metropolitan Opera. And they had monthly telecasts on the public broadcasting system. Texaco presents the New York Metropolitan Opera. Uh, classical concerts, Leonard Bernstein was a star. Uh, he was a corporate darling. And then sometime, well, it was when the grandkids of the people who put that model together, they like rock music. They don't like classical music. They don't understand, they don't think that classical music adds any cultural value to their experience whatsoever. So suddenly you have people 30, 40 years in working at these companies who say, we'd get more traction putting our name on a football stadium 
than we would giving it to a company or an organization that presents music that is liked by barely 5% of the population of the country. And as a business model, they're absolutely correct. So the orchestras start scrambling and saying, well, we have to make up these funds. I mean, we have to do these things. So suddenly the idea was we have to tailor these shows to appeal to people who ordinarily we wouldn't even want within five feet of our doors. So suddenly orchestras are playing Star Wars. They're playing the movie, playing along. Uh, one of the things they did in cities like Chicago and Detroit is they started tailoring uh, programs to cater to this burgeoning new black middle class of guys and gals who, after decades of being excluded from universities, were graduating and starting businesses and doing quite well. So they started doing, you know, they call it different things. They have, uh, I can't even remember the names, but it's like they, you know, we have this month in February, February is called Black History Month. So they play a series of concerts in Black History Month that features black artists and black conductors to lure the black people in under the hopes that they'll actually like classical music and start to invest in the symphony. Yeah. And sometimes that actually works. It has actually worked. So I think that when they started hiring me, it was because it was appealing. You know, here's this guy who comes from a musical family, Winton's his brother. He's played with Sting, the pop star. He was on the television show, The Tonight Show with Gileno, and now he's playing classical music. The audience doesn't know whether it's good or bad. They're coming to see him. And it was clear to me when that started, well, hey, you know, I can use this because my formula for getting better, which is frustrating to most of my students, there's only one way to get better at anything, is that to go out and be really bad at it in front of people. <laughs> Good incentive. You know, it's just, there's no way else around it unless you're 12. And it's great when you're 12 because you're really bad. No one's going to tell you you're really bad. They all tell you you're great. So you believe you're great because you don't have the kind of intellectual awareness to even hear how bad you sound. And by the time you start to develop that awareness, you're not bad anymore. You're pretty good. You're 18, 19. You've been practicing a couple hours a day. Yeah, you're, you're okay now. But when you do this in your 30s or your 40s, you are acutely aware, or even your 20s, you are acutely aware of how awful it is. But I saw no other way to get past it other than to suffer through it. So I used that to make myself better. And then people started say, hey, you want to do this gig? I'm like, man, this is weird. But yeah, of course, why wouldn't I want to do that? You wouldn't gig? turn down the New York Phil? No, I, I should have. I was, I was, when I played with the New York Phil, I was not happy because my manager, uh, and she's not a, a music fan, which is actually good. Most times it's good. But her relationship with music is very transactional. And I couldn't get her to understand that Pushing for me to play with New York Philharmonic the way I sound right now does not get you the thing that you want. Because you're getting me in a position where I'm playing mediocrely or okay with this great symphony. It's not like when Joshua Bell walks in there or when Tim McAllister walks in there, you know, or Arnold Bornkamp walks in there and starts playing and they go, whoa. It's like, oh, that wasn't, oh, it didn't suck. That was okay. And I think when it was over, I think I said, oh, now you understand. The phone's not going to start ringing off the hook. It's because, you know, her other client is Harry Connick. The, the entertainment standard is very different. You know, because he's funny, he's brilliant, he's gregarious, he's charming, he's charismatic, and he can play his butt off. 
and he writes great songs. So he's a singer songwriter. So making certain television appearances raises his profile and then doing this raises his profile. But I kept trying to make her understand that symphonic music is being average and playing with a great orchestra does not raise your profile. So I was really not happy with the timing, but my agent booked a gig and there I was. And I said, well, I'm just going to go out here and suck in front of everybody. And it helped me. I mean, I was terrified, but to be, to be in that situation automatically made me better once it was over. That's fine. Cause like I told you earlier, I just love playing this stuff. I never had any kind of monster aspirations, you know, to, to redefine the instrument or redefine this, all these, I mean, I get, I mean, be, be, because I started doing this and then I started coming to these conferences. I mean, that's how I met you. That's how I met Claude DeLong. That's how I met Arno. That's how I met McAllister. That's how I met uh, Cliff Lehman. I met all these people. I mean, just, you know, and they all gave me little pointers and little tips. I met Otis Murphy here. I mean, this is the place where I met all these guys. And I mean, I'm in it to play better. I'm, I'm not in it in a transactional way. I'm not in it to try to get symphony gigs. Because if I was, then I'd, I'd, I would have learned two pieces 15 years ago and just played just those two pieces everywhere. And I would be able to play the hell out of those two pieces right now. I wouldn't really be able to play well in general, but I would be really good on those two pieces. Uh, but you are now tackling some huge repertoire. Yeah, it's tough. And is that part of your development to just keep pushing yourself? Well, it's all an extension of the same thing at this point. It's almost like sports training. You, you start lifting weights and you want to bench press, want to get under the bar. And you think, no, no, you're not ready for that. You know, you're going to use dumbbells. And then you get up to 20 pounds, then it's 25, then it's 35, then it's 45. And you're feeling really good and you're feeling strong. You've been doing this about four or five months and your chest is starting to poke out a little bit and you're pushing. And then he says, okay, decline push-ups, which are basically you put your feet on a bench so you're elevated in a declined position and you do push-ups from there, which attacks the muscle from a different angle. So all of that confidence goes out the window because you can do 25 reps with 45 pounds and you can't do 10 decline push-ups. He goes, uh, variety is good, isn't it? Variety is good. So once you really start feeling good, now you have to attack the muscles from a different place. If you're interested in really developing, if you're interested in wearing tight shorts and have a swollen chest, no, it's bigger, stronger, faster. Just push, 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 push. Your chest expands and you're not interested in the inherent uh, weaknesses in your musculature but with music when you play a piece and you play it okay then you play another piece and it exposes a weakness oh wow i can't double tongue oh wow i really can't play those altissimos oh wow i can't play the low notes and some of the ways that the the the, the many jazz musicians would do it is well i'm never going to play this piece until i master all these things and it never really occurs to them that they're never going to master them until they start playing them and messing them up. And it is through the accidents you get to the other side of it. You become better 
than you imagine that you are because you are so focused on the things that you don't do well. So the mistakes give us an incentive to, to fix them, to improve. Well, I don't know if they give you an incentive, but I believe that the only way to eliminate mistakes is by making them. There's no way to avoid these kinds of roadblocks. They, they're going to present themselves and you have to work through them. They're much easier when you're younger. I think that naivety, when the kids start, they don't notice, they don't care, they just keep going. Yeah, they're not aware. I mean, young people aren't aware. It's great. That's what's just funny raising them. They don't, they're not aware of anything. But maybe that's what gives them the capacity to improve because they don't get down on themselves as older. Well, they will when they're older. Yeah. I think that my parents did a good job. My father really did a good job of highlighting what, what our weaknesses were when we were young and referencing them to him highlighting his weaknesses because he was of the firm belief that uh, – I, I, I was a clarinetist and I, I won this all city. There's these bands, the all city band. I know they have the same thing in Australia and I won the all city band. I'm going to all state feeling good. Come home. I say, yeah, dad, I just, I'm in all state, you know, first chair, second clarinet. And my dad says, well, son, you know, in, in the land of the blind, the one eyed man is always king. I went, wow, I can't even get an attaboy from you. And he said something very prescient to me. He says, son, I never met a man that improved by kissing his own ass. And that was the end of the conversation. And I sat there and I went, yeah, it's probably true. And as I got older, I remember going to Berkeley and these guys would get off the plane and they'd be like, well, here I am. It's like, nice to meet you. Yeah, man, I'm that guy. And then as time goes on, they realize they're not that guy. And some of them pack up and leave. Because if you come from a, if you're like a mama's boy or a daddy's boy and everybody tells you how special you are, and then you come face to face with this reality that you're not as special, you can bear down or you can go back to the place where they make you feel special. So it's a tricky thing. You know, in, in the States, we're always talking about children's self-esteem. I always find children are more resilient than many adults uh, if they are allowed to be resilient. And my parents did a really good job. I mean, we were playing in bars at 14. And there was an expectation that we were there to play music. And that if anything else happened, the bartenders would let him know because he's a musician. He knows them. And then that, pri that privilege would be revoked. Like we're giving you the opportunity at 14 to see things that most 14 year olds don't get to see, but you are not to participate in those things. And if you do, you will be removed. I knew they were serious. So I got to see drunk people. I got to see people who can handle alcohol. I got to see people who could not handle alcohol. I got to see, you know, men fighting with their women at the venues and women punching guys out and all these things that are like, Whoa, but, it's almost like the actor. I have these impressions about behavior and I started to learn how to read people uh, in terms of putting together a show. Like when does the show have a climax? 
how you know you, you gauge you learn how to gauge audiences because uh it's a much easier read in, in like an r&b club because the, the 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 in any kind of pop music club the factors are very simple the more people dance the more they drink the louder the music is the louder they talk the louder they talk the more they drink so you have to make them feel good because if they feel good the bar t- the bar owner makes more money which in turn allows you to make money if you uh you know abnegate any one of these things you make less money you ultimately get fired so we always had the attempt the, 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 there was always the temptation to overcomplicate the songs because we have all this harmony we listen to all this classical music let's add things in that'll make the song sound hip and the bartender comes up and says hey man you want to get fired you know leave that crap in your little practice room you don't do that out here this job is simple play funky music make the people dance i make money it's like oh you know that and that experience is I mean, what is, I mean, what is it that people like about jazz? They like jazz when it has a strong beat and a good melody and when it's exciting. Uh, modern odd meter explorations on harmonic devices, two chords to every bar, it's not exciting. Do you find that in classical music? It's a constant battle. Yeah. It's a constant battle, the whole, uh, the whole niche thing. Like when I, uh, when I did that Romances for Saxophone record 33 years ago, when I had no understanding of what I was doing, it was one of these affirmations. It was like an R&B affirmation. People like songs with great melodies. And if you have a tone and you can play with a hint of melancholy, even better. All of the things that were wrong with that record, uh, technical deficiencies, a lack of efficiency, mouthpiece too big, uh, not really good on pitch. They don't notice any of that. All they notice is how it feels and it felt great to them. And that was something I knew how to do. I knew how to milk a whole note because of the music that I'd grown up listening to, you know, listening to Wayne Shorter play with Weather Report, listening to Marvin Gaye croon, you know, singing Let's Get It On. You learn subconsciously when you do this enough how to create sounds that evoke an emotional effect. They do it in church every Sunday, in, in uh, Protestant churches. Even though I'm Catholic, most of my friends were Protestant. In Protestant churches, the organist is, is the, 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 the man behind the curtain or the woman behind the curtain. And when the preacher is telling his sermon, as it builds up, and it takes a while on purpose, the organ creeps in and the organ gets louder. And then when he gets to the punchline, bam and the audience starts screaming and then the band joins and it's an effect i mean it's an incredible effect but what i was learning through all these experiences was how to make music not necessarily how to play music but how to make it so uh when i did that romances record people saying well man you know that's a transcription record i said it's a what so it's a transcription record. None of these songs were written for the saxophone. I said, well, what's wrong with that? Oh, it just shouldn't be done. You know, we have all this great music written for the saxophone. I said, well, there's a lot of music written for the saxophone. I would hesitate to call it great. It's hard. But is that the arbiter? Is that the arbiter? Is, that, is, is it really, is that in the best interests of the instrument to dedicate your life to exploring the technical possibilities of the instrument? 
I'm a I'm I'm a nerd, so I'm all about technical mastery, but not at the expense of musical mastery. Because if we are ever able to make this recurring leap out of the saxophone congress into recitals and you have to have an element of of like today uh, uh Claude Delong played a prelude to the afternoon of a foreign at fawn which I hadn't heard in forever and his wife Odell man it was masterful the way she played this thing she was like the church organist in the Baptist church she set this template because you know Claude is a, a perf perfect. I mean, his technique is perfect. He can double tongue, he can slap tongue, he can do it. And what he chose to do here, he didn't try to play with a syrupy vibrato. He just played simple tone. And Odell was just, the man, the sound. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. The sound of it was just, it was, there was no one said a word in the entire, they weren't even coughing. It was nothing. And it's just this music. And when it was over, I mean, I think that when, and when they went out to take bows again, Claude pushed her in front of him and then he didn't come out and it was just her. And I think he knew that he knew that she, it was, I mean, I'd never heard her play piano before. It was, she's stunning. Like, can she play Rachmaninoff? I don't know. You know, can she play all of these? Can she play Beethoven piano concerto? No idea. But can she make music? Oh, yes. 40 years to get the playing. She can make music. I heard it. I know she can make music. She moved me. And Claude was, yeah, yeah. But I'd never really heard her. Play. It was it was absolute. It was a gift. I mean, and, and that, see, that's music. Like, you can take that piece out of this you can take those two musicians and put them anywhere in the world. And for eight minutes, they will have that entire world eating out of their hand. The same cannot be said for these really high microtonal technical pieces, which it exists. So one should play it. I believe that it makes you better. Everything you learn makes you better. But when you decide to make that your career, it's like a lot of the stuff in jazz. It, it, you, you, have, you have dedicated yourself to a very limited career. The niche gets smaller. And the niche is just a niche. It's a niche. The niche of a niche. That's what it is. It's just, you know, and, and you know, it's, I don't really know the, the intricacies of the classical saxophone world to that degree because I'm in it, not of it. I'm in it. <laughs> but in jazz, for instance, there's the the language of the niche. Like, buy my record. It got five stars in downbeat. Like they put that on their website. Five stars in downbeat. Regular people don't read downbeat. Never heard of the magazine. So you are basically constantly communicating to the people who are already in your group. This is the thing. You know, you get a song played on jazz radio. It's the same people. It's not expanding your base. There's no way to expand the base when your entire mechanism is built on impressing the niche. You are no stranger to receiving awards. I mean, what do they mean to you? Nothing. <laughs> it's just recognition for something. It's just nothing. 
I mean, if there was an award given out by you know, the saxophonists from the World Saxophone Congress, it would have value because we are for better or for worse colleagues. And for people to appreciate you knowing what it is that you do. And then there's this other side where people just appreciate it. They like the way it sounds. They like it. They like it. But the nature of the award, I mean, what, what is it? Does it mean that uh, I remember when Sally Field won? She was an act, American actress, Sally Field. She started out as a television actress and then she went into movies and she won an Academy Award. And it was really revealing. She ran onto the stage and she says, You like me. You really like me. And I, and I, I said, Wow. What does that feel like to be in a business and wondering if people like you or not? Not wondering if you're good, just wanting people to like you. It's a lot of people like that. I just because of my parents and and you know people I was around. I just never really had that. I come from a friendly uh, a friendly city. I'm friendly. I'm a hugger. I laugh. I make fun of myself. I just the idea that. I just don't need that kind of validation. I mean, there's certain mu there are musicians I know, and um, I have three Grammys in there in boxes in the basement because uh, my wife's not a musician. My kids aren't musicians. Like, they play music, but they're not musicians. Our house shouldn't be covered in stuff that I've done. It's just, it's just you know, and when people meet me, um, I'm more interested in they meet me because who I am defines the outcome of my music, not the, not the other way around. So when you go into someone's house and you walk through the front door and they're literally 18 Grammys as soon as you walk in, it's the makings of a shallow person, of a person who wants you to think that that is them because what they are, there's not enough there or they don't feel there's enough there. And it's like the people who buy fancy cars and then spend 20 minutes talking about their car. It's the same kind of thing. It's like, why would a person think that I would want to talk about their car? But then there are other people who that's what they do. They talk about cars. You know, they talk about anything other than themselves. They talk about where they live. They talk about how they live. They talk about what member of the golf club they're in, what kind of car they drive, where they went on vacation, all things that are designed to deflect. It's like the worst possible way for a musician to be because people want us to create a sound that shows that we're bearing our soul. I mean, that's what they want, whether they know they want it or not. That's the experience. Like that thing that happened today in the recital with the DeLongs. That's what I want. It's, you know, all this hard technical stuff. It's hard. I appreciate the difficulty of it. I totally appreciate it. Like there was a, a there's a, a, a saxophone quartet, Zahir Quartet. Man, they were amazing. I mean, they did all of this stuff. I mean, it was really amazing. I was knocked out by them. And uh, their instructor, uh, Jean, I can never remember his the middle name, but it's it's not it's not Jean Michel. It's Jean. He was great. He's a great soprano player. He's great. I mean, and I appreciate that. I would love to do that. I can't slap tongue. I'm never going to learn how. I'm, I'm almost 60. I get that. I'm, I'm good. I'll sleep at night. 
And I'm always amazed at, at, at hearing this kind of, you know, this beautiful perfection. But that, that thing that Claude and Liddell did was, was, we were privileged to be in that, that room. And, and that's, that's the thing to me. That's, and if you can do both of those things, you're a beast. I mean, that's, that's the thing. Say, okay, this piece, we're going to have this technical side. We're going to beat your brains out. Now the next piece, we're going to play with a, with, with, with a sound that is so melancholy and so longing. I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the, the two headed monster is better than either monster. Yeah, I've got a few kind of quick questions. Sure, man. Can Look, I could sit here all night and do this. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Fine. <laughs> is there anything that you really believe and other people really disagree with? Oh, yeah. Everything. <laughs> yes, just about. Yeah. How, how do you deal with that? You know, you're a friendly guy. How do you deal with that in a friendly way when you have views that are... Oh, I don't really care. Right. That's at the end. Like, I don't need to be right. I need to be right for me. I don't need to be right to them. Uh, when I heard, when I was going to Berkeley, I heard all these abs absurd theories about what swing is. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew that wasn't right. And I would just say, well, that's not swing. So well, what makes you so sure? I said, I have records. When I put on the records, I do not hear drummers playing ride patterns based on triplet feel. That's not what swing is. Everybody else is like, man, why do you have to be so you know, difficult? I said, how is that difficult? I am dissenting, but it's like, they, they, I guess, you know, the way I was talking about it was harder to grasp than the way that they wanted to talk about it. And it's been like that ever since. What improvisation is, I mean, improvisation, we're doing more impro improvising, you and I right now, than what goes on on most band, jazz band stages. Because you have some questions you wanted to ask me, and then I would say something, and then you would veer away from the question because it would trigger another thing. That's what improv is. It's not, I know the chord changes and I'm going to practice to have five options that I can play on every chord on every song and just play them, you know, vomit them out. And that's where we are. So <clears throat> when I make statements like that, I think 75%, 80% of the jazz world completely disagrees with that, even though it's true. They, would, they don't like hearing that because that's what they chose to do. But for me... If I were the king, I mean, everybody gets to do what they want to do. Like, this is the part where, where, where I mean, a guy in New York about 10 years ago said, man, I read this article, man, why don't, why, don't, why don't you just let people do what they want to do? I said, when have I stopped anybody from doing what they want to do? I said, no, but you, you're so critical. I said, no, but you, you, oh, so you want me to just agree with what everything wants to do? No, I'm never going to do that. But I wouldn't stop anybody from doing it. That's what you want to do. Do that. But to my ear, this is what that is. And then they say, well, I don't think that's it. I said, then knock it out, man. Knock it out. I have a jazz band. We play to hundreds of people and sometimes to thousands of people. We don't play in little tiny jazz clubs anymore unless we want to. And you have this masterful mathematical paradigm that is sheer genius and you're playing to 55 people. Okay. Do you think audience size is a sign of the effectiveness of music? No. Audience size. In most societies, the operative verb is to see, not to hear. Germany is the exception. 
they go to hear music. If you can get Germans to keep coming back to hear you over a long period of time, it's because you're playing something that, you know, you're playing it in a way that they're not going to hear anybody else play it. And that's why they come back. Uh, most people, they come to see, that's why, you know, young people playing jazz always sells better than old people playing jazz because they're young. Haven't seen them before. Let's go see those guys. With us, the promoters always say, I really wish you would come here with a band other than your band because people have already seen that. And I say, yeah, but they haven't heard it. We sound different every year. But, but they're like, yeah, I know, man, but we just can't. You know, people don't want that. They want to see new things. So uh, in popular culture, people sustain that, you know, with few exceptions. I mean, Sting was an exception. Springsteen was an exception. But most people sustain it with all of this, this, this off-stage behavior to keep their name in the public eye by saying outrageous things, doing outrageous things. Oh, and then I have a, rec a record releasing. I mean, it's, a, it's like Kanye West had a little kerfuffle last month. And everybody said, what do you think about Kanye? I said, I don't. I don't think about him ever. But do you think what he said? I said, I barely know what he said. I just don't care. I just don't. I'm not going to feed this machine. It's just, it's a stunt. To me, yeah. And it, and it works. It's effective. It works. Everybody talks about him. You know, every, we've been talking about him since he went on the stage with Katy Perry and cut her off and said she was lousy and that it should have gone to whomever he said it should have gone to. And he understands the nature of people. People like sideshows and freak shows and circus shows. And there was this thing where, where, where Long Long was, was successful very young. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. I mean, Yo-Yo Ma, I'm pretty sure, is of Chinese descent, but not from China. Long Long is from China. He's 1920s out there killing it. And then it just became this event. Suddenly, Chinese people from China, not Chinese Americans, not Asian Americans, Chinese people with considerable sums of money in this new economy that they have are putting their chips behind Long Long. And the concerts are selling out. And it's like a much grander version of the thing that happened to me. All the while, he's getting better because he's not falling for the trap. He's like, this is a great thing as long as I keep focus on what is. And he continues to work on things. He continues to get better. Uh, the writer for the New York Times just went on a tear against like, this guy is awful. He's horrible. And it's a funny thing. Long Long, at, at, at a very tender age, understood what, what our president does not understand right now is that, you know, people in positions of power should never punch down. They just shouldn't. So he just ignored all of that and continued to work. And after about five years, people started writing articles about why Anthony Tomasi was being so critical of Long Long. It seemed personal. And that was just brilliant for him to not take that bait invalidate that argument, but continue to work on his craft. Now, Yuja Wang is also from China and she's quite the incredible pianist, but it doesn't, and, and she plays with orchestras. They love her. She's this artist in residence. She has, she's an incredibly gifted pianist, but it didn't have that right spark magic explosion thing that happened when Long Long showed up. So sometimes people show up, it's not necessarily for the right reasons, 
So you're grateful that it happens to you. And as long as you continue to play for the right reasons, then it's all okay. But when you start becoming a, a sideshow character and like, you know, singing with the Spice Girls and doing, yeah, then it's destructive, you know, when you start suddenly, you know, singing, you know, It's a Man's World with James Brown. It's, it's a strange thing to see Luciano Pavarotti on the stage with James Brown. I mean, clearly you got paid a lot of money, but it's like, are you serious? Really? Are you serious? And uh, that hasn't happened. I mean, Long Long's doing his thing. You just doing her thing. I mean, you know, so uh, sometimes success occurs and it's a mystery why it does and where it doesn't. But as long as you understand what it is and you continue to work on your craft, that's the only part you can control. Because it's sometimes as quickly as it comes, it disappears. So then if you suddenly decide that being famous is more important than being a good musician, then you're going to take a different path and you'll do that. But So what's your motivation to get up every day and practice? I spent a lot of time in my younger years playing jazz, but not really dedicating myself to it, always hedging my bets, kind of just flirting around. Then I join a pop band, join a TV show, do all these things, because I had this kind of personality and the kind of brain where I could adapt to surroundings in ways that a lot of other people can't. So uh, when I finally decided to leave the television show, I really thought that that it was time for me to grow up and just figure out how good I could be. I don't, I don't have a lot of time left on this planet. I need to make the most of it. And I was 36 and now I'm 58 and I'm getting better. And uh, it's pretty unusual for old people to get better because like my friends, I went to college, I moved to New York, they stayed and they went to college, they went to Louisiana, they went to these different places and then they got jobs. So we're 25, 26, and we all have jobs. Except by the time they were 30, they were already talking about retirement because their job is transactional. I got to make money. I got this job. And I'm, I'm marking down the date when I'm going to buy my house in such and such. I got my 401k set up. So for the next 20 years, you are not dedicating yourself to improve at this job because you don't like this job. You can't wait to quit this job. And that's just one of those, uh, I'm lucky. Well, I'm maybe, very fortunate. Maybe a lot of musicians, maybe that's why we choose music. Maybe because it gives us those freedoms not to be in something that's the same over and over again. Well, in a lot of ways, music is the same over and over again. You get up in the morning, you start practicing. It sounds like crap. You get up the next day, starts practicing. Okay, this sounds good. That sounds like crap. It's like the same kind of battle. It's just... You know, I, I mean, I've actually met musicians and I said, and I would just a simple question, like, why are you a musician? And it was like, man, you know, can you imagine having a nine to five? And I'm like, well, yeah, I could. I could imagine having a nine to five. So, I mean, I've heard all kinds of things, you know, it's really great when you go to a club and they tell you, you don't have to pay to get in. It makes you feel like you belong. I said, well, I'd rather pay, <laughs> you know, I'd rather, because if I play in that club, I'm not going to give them a discount. So when I go to clubs, I pay to get in. I pay to hear the musicians. And I don't have a problem with that. But sometimes there's musicians who just want to feel like they're in the inner circle. That's more important to them than practicing. But I, I get up. I don't mind getting up and beating it. I don't mind. You know, it's like a golfer. I don't mind getting up and beating balls all day. Like that. You have to like to do that. So what would you do if you had just, say, an hour 
just an hour. What do you do in your practice? Oh, I mean, just, I'm, I'm playing this Gabriel Prokofiev concerto, so I'd probably practice that. It's really hard. I hadn't played it in a year, and I'm recording it next month. So I would do that. Um, one of the things I would do is something I learned from the saxophone is Doug O'Connor, who's a young, young man, quite talented. He's here. He played here. Uh, is that I would just do a lot of soft practice, play really soft tones. I would do that for 15, 20 minutes. And then I would double tongue for 15 or 20 minutes. Because you want to keep working on it. Yeah, because it's awful. <laughs> It really is. And and I thought it was better. And I, I played the first movement of Tamazi in a recital last week. And it was like, oh, my God, this is so awful. And then I started thinking about it. And I said, well, when do you practice double tonguing? Only when you practice the Tamazi. I said, you got you to gotta do this every day. All the old lessons started coming back, the clarinet lessons. There's certain things you have to do every day. And with my schedule and with kids and all this other stuff, I, I stopped doing those things every day. Because the practice window is so narrow, I just get to whatever the task is. In the, the I, I kind of like uh, uh, ignore the process. But that was a good lesson. And I said, yeah, I, I need to, this needs to be a part of it every day. And uh, since I've been here, I've been battling jet lag. And I had this day where I played three performances and one day with three rehearsals before the performances and a fourth rehearsal after the third performance for the concert the following night. And my brain just said, yeah, I'm going to sleep now. And, uh, but when I, I'm, I'm going home on Sunday. Yeah. I get home on Sunday. So Monday morning, I'll be beating it, man. I'm getting up doing the double tongue and doing the soft practice. Cause I don't have any, I'm, I got five free days. So I don't have all these other things. And I have one piece to practice, not several because this is the first time in two or three years where I didn't have to practice five or six pieces at one time. And at one point at the beginning of this year, it was 15. I had to practice 15 pieces at the same time because I had th the entire month of February were classical gigs, but it was different rep for each gig. I told my agent, I said, man, that's really, thanks, man. That's, that was real brilliant. He goes, okay, I'm sorry. It'll never happen again. So you're traveling six months a year. I mean, there's days where you can really practice, there's days where you can't practice at all. You must be pretty efficient at using your time. I always, if my practice load is heavy, uh, we have a concert at eight, I'll be at the venue at four. And from four to six, I'm practicing. I take a break at six, iron my suit, eat dinner, and I, uh, if I finish in 45 minutes, then I'll practice some more till 7.30. And then at 7.30, I'll be ready, starting, you know, playing some jazz things and getting ready for the show. Do you think there's a connection between improvisation and composition? Or are they two separate things? Yeah, they're, they're well, hmm. there, there is a connection, actually. Well, it depends. Uh, it depends. Uh, music in the romantic period, you have to be a bit of an improviser to make it work. To play Brahms, you have to know when to stretch the tone because this is all improv. When to play soft, when to play loud, when to make it syrupy, when to make it angry. Modern composition is kind of like Debussy. You know, Debussy 
as beautiful as the music is, you don't have to do anything to it. It's designed to be beautiful. Just play it. It'll be beautiful. And in modern composition, there's all this stuff going on. You don't have time to interpret. You just have to play your part. And if you get the slightest bit off, you might not find your way back to it for a while. But when you have a person who writes music similar to the romantic period, yes. There's a lot of improv in that. That's why with all of the pianists in the world, there were always a few like Glenn Gould or Arthur Rubinstein or Martha Agarich, Agarich, who just were able to create this sound that endures with that, with those, with, with, you know, playing that kind of music that requires that kind of stretching and contraction. And it's, that's kind of what improvisation is supposed to be. It's supposed to feel like it's happening right in front of you. Not like it's meticulously prepared, but since people's listening skills aren't as good in general, it's like, it's, it's the quote is man, improv, how can you really like, you know, deal with the, 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 the awesome discipline of classical music when you, when you're choosing like the freedom of jazz and improvisation, <laughs> I said, almost all the improvisation today is rehearsed. Really? They can't hear that. Because to really hear it, you would have to spend years listening to people who didn't do that. And then if you spent years listening to people who didn't do that, and you can sing along with the solos of the musicians who didn't do that, then suddenly you would be acutely aware of how rigid and eminently logical and linear all this stuff is now. It all fits in the box. Everything fits in the box. It doesn't stretch. Everything is bam, right on the, right on the money. And it's flawless in its execution. So how do you go about your own writing? Um, I never did subscribe to that half-baked notion that uh, you should just write a tune a day. It's like, you know, it's like having a photo session. The reason I hate photo sessions is that the photographers don't think that they're good. So they shoot for hours to find one photo. Mathematically, one of them is bound to be good. So, what I do is the same thing I did when I learned how to play. I listen to music. I listen to music with great melodies. Um, and I allow my brain to absorb that information and then I just start writing. And sometimes nothing comes out and that's fine. And then other times things come out. Sometimes in the horn, sometimes on the piano, sometimes in my head. Sometimes I'll sing it, write it down, sing it into a... Uh, one of those, you know, into your phone now. It used to be a little dictaphone. Now you sing it into the voice app, voice memo app on your phone. And I always put the chords on at the end. Harmony lost. Of course. Because harmony, one thing that classical music proves time and again is that harmony can be anything that you need it to be to make the melody work. That's what every score has ever, any score you choose to look at proves that. There's no chord structures on the chord. There's no chord symbols. There's no blocks. It's just notes. It's just notes that are indicative of sound. Because the whole thing, our, our thing is sound. It's a sound thing. It's, it's, sound is what moves people. Sound is what affects human beings, not data. That's our job. We have to learn the data. And we have to translate it into a sound. I always, for my students, I use the microwave. I said, imagine if you went to a store to buy a microwave and he says, I can't sell you this because you don't know anything about the physical properties of microwave technology. You're not hip enough to own this machine. 
you'd go somewhere else and you find somebody say, I just wanted a microwave. I don't want to hear this. So when you tell me that the problem in music is that the audiences aren't sophisticated enough to understand your music, do you realize that you're signing your own death warrant? Because they're never going to be hip enough. That's not their job. Their job is to like it or not like it. It's a very simple job. Your job is to convince them that it's worthy of being liked. And by looking down on the audiences as though they're peasants and not knowing how to enjoy yourself on stage, you're going to lose. I've seen you play a few times now. Actually, you do enjoy yourself on stage. Hell yes, I enjoy myself on stage. Does that help with, you're talking about the New York Phil, does that help with being anxious about something? Just enjoying it? No, I was terrified when I played with the New York Phil. The first seven or eight years when I played classical music, people would say, you just look like you're having more fun when you're playing jazz. I said, I am. <laughs> and he said, well, why are you doing this? I said, because one day I'll have fun doing this. You have no understanding of how hard this is. I'm using the part of my brain I've never used before. My brain's not happy with me. It's freaking out. And when it freaks out, it freaks me out. And my legs start to shake and I start to sweat and I can't be myself. But if I just suffer through this, one day the brain's going to say, I have enough code. I'm cool now. And then I can just be. And it was eight, nine years into the process. And it's like, oh, I'm not freaking out anymore. Great. But you have to believe in the process. You have to. And history was my favorite subject in, in school. I only had two subjects I excelled in. And those were the ones I liked. It was history and English. The rest of them, it was just C's and D's. And I didn't care. Drove my mother crazy. I said, you know, I'm math. For what? You know, my my trigonometry teacher, you know, this is very important. I said, yeah, if I'm going to go to NASA, it's super important. But for buying groceries, I'm good. I can add. I don't need this. I'm not going to go home and beat myself to death learning geometry. I don't like it. The state's making me take it. All I have to do is pass it. Oh, you're an underachiever. That's not really what this is. I'm not underachieving. This is not something I want to achieve. Look at my history grades. Look at my English grades. Straight A's. That's what I like. And the history part has been great for me. Because when the history teacher is good, you're not just learning useless dates. You know, 1492, 1776, 1802, whatever. You know, 1944, 1945, you know, December 7th, 1941, a day which will live in infamy. The story behind how these things happen, how history repeats itself over and over again in different languages and in different locations, how the entire balance of the world is based on something as innocuous as a, a, a leader who has a, a very deep dislike of his own mother. This is like little things like that. that you're like, are you kidding me? We went to war because of that? How fun things are. And you always take the long view. History takes the long view. Because when you're in the middle of something and it's happening, uh, very similar to like the political shenanigans going on in the United States and people saying, oh, the country would never recover from this. I said, really? Oh, we'll never recover. This is awful. I said, yeah, I, I know how Germany feels when I go there. It's just, I can just feel the weight of, 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 you know, Nazism. Oh, that's right. I don't feel the weight of Nazism. You were, you, you're taking a posture if you understood anything about the history of Nazism and totalitarianism in the Soviet Union, 
We're fine. It's just not what you want, but it's not the end of the world. And we will recover from this. And history always takes a long view on this. And this will be one of those times, very similar to the McCarthy period in the 1950s, where all these people are like, man, what the hell were we thinking? I know that because history says that. With my friends, they say, this is the worst president I've ever seen. I said, that's because you don't know anything about the other presidents. So what I suggest you do is go buy a book on Andrew Johnson and go buy a book on Grover Cleveland, you know, and go buy a book on uh, what's Fillmore, James Fillmore. Go buy these books. They were pretty lousy. You know, go buy a book on Calvin Coolidge. And then the statement has some context. But because most of my friends and most people aren't interested in doing that kind of research, they like the way it feels to say that this person whom I don't agree with is the worst person ever in the history of X. And that kind of thought process makes for really bad musicianship. That's repeating the exact same thing they're criticizing. It's absolute opinion. That's the irony of it all. That's the irony of it is that uh, when Obama was elected in 30% of Americans freaked out because a black guy was president and they started these movements like the Tea Party. And then you have like now Trump is in and there's the resist movement. And they said, man, you know, what do you think about the resist movement? I said, they're just like the Tea Party. It's just it's on the left. It's the same thing. You know, they're, they're outraged and mad and angry. And what are we going to get from that? The Tea Party, you know, they, they were going to be here for a thousand years, kind of like the Third Reich. You were here to stay. They're gone. They were gone as soon as Obama was reelected. Gone. So you're sitting here, you know, I'm just, I'm taking the long view on all of this. Has the politics had any effect on the life of a musician? No. That's what I tell them. I said, I'm, I'm working, I was working 20 days a month. And then he got elected, and I'm working 20 days a I month. mean, there obviously have been regimes in history where there have been big effects. Yeah, that's my point to these, yeah. these ridiculous people who are trying to compare him. I mean, Trump might want to ban certain music, but the United States is a weird place. It actually works. There's not going to be a thing that like, like what just happened in Poland where a guy comes in and he's able to like clear out the entire judiciary and replace him with his friends or what Orban's doing in Hungary. It's, it's not going to happen in the United States. We have 200 years of these institutions and the institutions are fighting back. And it's there for everyone to see. But most people's understanding of politics in our country is superficial at best anyway, which is why it's so easy for people like Trump to get elected. People don't really dedicate themselves to being true citizens of the country and understanding uh, civics. Civics used to be taught when we were kids. Civics is no longer taught in the United States. So students don't even have an understanding of how the government runs or what it is or what their obligation is as citizens in a republic. They would rather watch a music video and listen to a news channel you know, help you clarify your choice in 30 seconds or less, you know, tastes great, less filling, tastes great, less filling. I'm voting for that guy. He looks like he tastes great. It's just, it's just, <laughs> it's just you know, it's just like, it's, and, and I'm, I have a lot of friends who are like that. And I say, you can't really be mad at the outcome. You didn't invest any time. You didn't invest any time. Some of you didn't even vote. This is where we are. We're fine. 
you know, my passport isn't revoked. My citizenship isn't in question. There are some people who are catching hell. You know, they're not citizens and they've been treated with a level of disrespect. That's a long, complicated story. But, but what I call it is, if you can, I use the metaphor of the extinction burst. If you think about a star, you know, if you think about an idea or an ideology in a country that a group of people believe in, whether it is outward or in most cases, it's just a kind of inward belief that makes them feel secure at night. And then they look up one day and they realize that this star is about to go Nova. And as a star uh, begins to explode, the density of the star creates a situation where the star literally starts to collapse in on itself. And as it contracts, it creates brighter and brighter and brighter energy. It becomes more and more ferocious. And then it gets to a place and then it's a Nova. We're in an extinction burst right now. There's an ideology that has been around since before 1950. And the citizens who grew up in that period strongly believe in what the country should represent to them. The country has changed. They don't like it. Do you think with your traveling, your perspectives are a little broader, let's say? Do you, would, would you encourage travel to, I mean, to anyone? But No, it just depends. Travel can help. I am in Kyoto, Japan. And as it always is, you land, you go to bed at 10, you're up at four. And it's going to be like that for days. In Kyoto, there was only one shop that opened early and it opened at six. It was a donut shop called Mr. Donut. I said, well, it's time for my date with Mr. Donut. I get up. The streets are completely empty at six. No one out there. I'm standing next to an American and I have on a Michigan State shirt. She says, you know, are you American? Now, the real, the real me, I always kind of pause and give like the second answer. My first answer is uh, black guy, Michigan State t-shirt in Japan. Yeah, it kind of fits the criteria, but I just went, yes. <laughs> I says, are you kidding me? That's the first thing. She says, how long have you been here? I said, well, I just got here. She goes, this place sure is weird. <laughs> I said, no, it's not weird. It's just different. And she says, well, those, that's the same thing. I said, no, weird and different are not the same thing. Weird implies that where you are from is better than where you are now. And what I'm saying is that it's just slightly different. No, you can't go anywhere and get a hamburger, but you can get a lot of fish. The food here is cleaner. They don't sell French fries in the restaurant except at McDonald's. Yeah, they drive on the left side of the road. Yeah, they bow a lot. Yeah, they speak in certain terms, but there's context to this. And if you don't want to learn the context, then you shouldn't travel. Or you should just go to places that affirm what it is. That's why a lot of Americans love going to, America, to, to Australia and specifically to Queensland. Because it reminds them of home. They say, boy, Australia was great. I went to Brisbane. I went to Adelaide. They, they, they see what, that's what they want to see. They want to see things that remind them of themselves. And then there's always Americans all over the world who live in Myanmar and Burma and Thailand. And they're just 
amazing people because they can't live there and be who they were. So they become someone else and they see the world with other people's eyes. And that's what musicians, that's what we do. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to see the world with other people's eyes, you know, through sound. Would that mean if we're playing a piece, we're seeing music through the composer's eyes? Is that one of our jobs? Um, well, the composers are dead. And if they are alive, the composers can talk to me, but I have my own approach to sound. And I have a sense of how to affect an audience with a piece or how to create tension in a piece with the orchestra that I have honed. So I will always respect the composer's opinion. As a matter of fact, modern composers write a piece for you. They say, I'm going to send you some of these bits and tell me what you think about it. I say, well, what are you sending it to me for? I'm not composing it. If I wanted to do that, I'd be writing it. Write your piece. Oh, no, I just want to know what do you think about it. I say, I think it's great. Write your piece. Just make sure it's playable. You know, make sure it's playable. And then you would get the piece and it's not playable. And I said, you know, you could have just hired a saxophone player for 50 bucks or a hundred bucks and say, Hey, read this piece. And they could have told you what I'm telling you now, three days before the premiere, it's not playable. <laughs> this happened two years ago. This is what are we going to do? I said, I'm going to play the piece so you can sit there and hear that it's not playable. And he heard it and he was like, yeah, it's kind of, all of that is kind of off the instrument, isn't it? Yeah, kind of is. You know, so it just depends on who the composer is. I mean, yeah, the composer has a voice, but I have to make it mine. If there was just one piece that you could play now, forever, what would that be? I would, I would really not like to do that. <laughs> hmm. I don't think that piece has been written yet. I don't think it has. I play songs that are beautiful. And... I'm going to make it okay for saxophone players to play pretty stuff. Like, yeah, let's play pretty stuff, man. Let's just play pretty stuff. Let's play songs. I love playing songs. We, we didn't have the benefit of having an instrument old enough to have people with great talent write great songs for us. It's okay. Let's go grab those songs and adapt them and play them. I mean, it, you know, people love them. I mean, it, we, I played this concert. I played the Tamazi. 80% well. That's hard on an audience. So I said, let's just play movement one. Because movement two doubles down in a way that the audience is like, oh, when is it going to stop? So we played movement one. And then we followed it with, um, what did we play? Uh, I can't, I'm, I'm looking, I see the music, but it wasn't Sam Barber. We, we did play a lot of Barber. Uh, it was either Du Bistiru by uh, Schubert or something like that. And you follow up, you know, the hammer with a nice, you know, creme brulee. And they were like, oh, that was so beautiful. I said, yeah, well, the hammer's coming back now. And they laugh. And you play another tough piece. And you say, okay, now this one's for you. And it, it worked. They, they stayed. They didn't leave. They were encouraging and 
They gravitated to the things that they like and they tolerated the things that they didn't necessarily like. And they may have learned something along the way because oh, they were exposed know. to something. You're asking a lot there to learn something. I mean, people come to shows to be entertained. They don't come to learn. I'm okay with that. I think that sometimes it's a trap for us when we start thinking that, this is like that conversation I had earlier. Like the, the, the audience needs to step their game up. The audience will never step their game up. I mean, the audiences are the audience. I mean, they don't know anything about R Ravel, but what they do know about Ravel is he wrote Bolero. They don't know any of his other music. And if they heard it, they go, ah, just put on Bolero. So it's like this, it's not really a game. Well, it's just a push and a pull. There's a woman named Lorraine Gordon who ran the, the, uh, the Village Vanguard Club in New York. And we, I would always play there. And, you know, I was in my late 20s and we were selling out because of movies and all this other stuff. We weren't really good jazz players yet, but we were playing jazz and we were young and people were coming. It was sellout, six nights, sold out, people were around the corner. And then uh, this guy from another club said, man, why do you always play the Vanguard? Because you could make more money playing at my club. And he pulls out a pad. He goes, the numbers don't add up. Why do you play there? I said, well, when you have a transactional relationship with the club and the music like you do, yeah, it wouldn't make any sense. I said, the reason I play here is because the week after we play there, there's a pianist named Horace Tapscott who's going to play here. And Horace Tapscott's music is brilliant and complicated. And no one will show up. So I am happy to play here for six nights to subsidize the amount of money that Lorraine's going to lose by bringing Horace. And I respect the fact that she brings Horace. You would never bring Horace Tapscott to your place. That's why I play at the Vanguard. So I don't think that the situation has really changed that much. I mean, the reality is that uh, audiences generally like what they like. There are certain places, like I said, you know, the old Austro-Hungarian empire, there was so much incredible music going on there. They have different ears than most people in the world. And they can actually hear what you're trying to do. And they hear when you suck, too. I mean, I got ripped a couple of times in my, in my early 30s. And when I read what people were saying, I was like, yeah, it's kind of true, actually. Okay, yeah. Well, but they say it. Yeah. I'll grow, I'll grow out of that. There's nothing I can do about it now. It's not like a light switch. Oh, I'll never do that again. I mean, you got to grow out of it. But it was an interesting perspective about how our music sounded to them. It's, it was too much the same. It didn't have any variety. And a modern musician would say, well, man, there's tons of variety, harmonic variety, but not sonic variety. And that's what they were talking about. It all starts to sound the same after a while. And I said, well, boys, we got to go do some work. More work for us. And we did. We, we started listening to, uh, I started listening to a lot of chamber music because we had to get, I mean, jazz is kind of like popular music. I mean, there's two volumes, loud and louder. And when I started listening to a lot more chamber music and the guys, Joey started listening to Chopin, suddenly the songs were taking on shapes and colors that you wouldn't have if you don't listen to that music. And it took five years or so, but yeah, it changed the way that we played the music and we still you know, benefit from that now. How is it that your lineup is so stable? 
Mm, I pay them well. That's really a big thing. And every time that they go to play with other people, which I encourage or with their own groups, they know they're going to be challenged. They know we're going to make a great record. We're a great band. We're going to make a great record. And we're going to challenge each other. And we're going to have fun doing it. We're never going to sit around and make the same record that we made in the last one. And uh, it's, it's exciting to play every night. How important has recording been? It's not important at all. So you do a lot of recording? No. <laughs> you don't? Every two years, every three years. If we have something to say, we make a record. No one's, no one's going to buy them. <laughs> so it's, it's that the whole, the whole thing is, is the recordings are like a musician's CV. Right. I'll be dead in 50 years if I'm lucky, you know, or less than that. Who knows? But the point is, is that you leave behind these, this evidence of your existence that musicians can listen to and other people can listen to. And, you know, students and scholars can compare and listen and analyze. And this is, this is our record. This is, this is like our scores. This, these are the scores that we, we leave behind. And, do they exhibit growth? Do they exhibit consistency? Do they exhibit repetition? These are the these are the questions, and it's always a relative question because you know, some people think that repetition is the same as consistency, and so there, there are all these varying opinions. There will always be varying opinions, but this is these records are are are, are as my father said. He started said, "Well, we just." Uh, Records are actually documents. They are documents that signify a growth or a lack of growth. I said, yeah, okay, yeah. That's why we make them. But we're not, people always say, well, you know, you're in the record business. I've never been in the record business. I'm in the music business. I make records. I'm not in the record business. I, I will not say that we don't have a tour that is the name of the record. Like we're not in that business, you know. Does this tie in with your love of history? I mean, are you are you documenting? Hmm? Are you documenting music through recording? Like yeah, you love history. I'm documenting how I thought about music at a given point in time, and I'm either right or I'm wrong. And history will bear that out. What's really funny to me is that when it comes to my recorded music. Everybody always goes to the 80s. All these people, man, those records you did in the 80s, those records are terrible. So it's really great for me in a way because the guys in the band, I said, man, look at how far we've come. Like these guys are listening to records. Man, we wouldn't spit on those records now. So it's just like, you. it's really interesting that, because those records were more in that post-bop school with linear mindset that we were really consciously trying to break away from. And now that we've, we, it's, it seems that we've appeared to have done it, the musicians that are coming behind us are just very linear and they like the linear stuff. So whatever we did in the 90s or we did in the zeros and the aughts, they don't want anything to do with that. Like, oh man, I reckon you did in 88. I was like, and I just say, yeah, thanks kid. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to give them the speech because you can't talk some place. You cannot talk someone into a, a mindset. They have to arrive there on their own. So uh, my dad was very Socratic in that way. He would ask you a series of questions that are allowing you to question your own existence. No, not your existence, but your own existence as a musician and giving you the room to figure out where you are. And it's the way I teach. I mean, some kids, they really don't like that way of teaching because they want to come in 
and they want you to teach them. They want to walk in and say, okay, here are these scales. Go learn these. Come back next week. But I have two simple questions when I get a student. I say, uh, well, why are you here? And they never have an answer. And I said, well, play a C scale, two octaves. I said, okay, what did that sound like? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, we've been here about three minutes and we've established two things. You have no earth, earthly idea why you're here and you have no understanding of what you sound like. So the lesson's pretty much over. So thanks for coming. I won't charge you. And if you ever figure out one of those two questions, come back. Most don't come back. Because they just want that transaction. They want to say they study with me. They don't want to get better. They don't want to be challenged. They just want to put it on their CV. And I hate to break the news to them. It's like, it's like the World Cup. No one ever asks for a footballer's CV because it's either you can play or you can't. And that's music. A university will ask for a CV, but a promoter will not. So you have these kids thinking that they're going to study with somebody that has a name and that saying that they studied will be advantageous to them. It really won't. Is this the, like the idea of collecting awards? Is it a similar mindset? Yes. It's completely transactional. So when we play a concert, they will always say, multiple Grammy award winner. Like, what does that even mean? What? Ooh. I mean, they say it every time. It's like three-time Grammy award winner. And what is it? If, you, if I just said that to them, a very Socratic thing, say, when you say that, what, what does that mean to you? Wouldn't even know. It's just something you do. It's just something to do. I got to say something about it. They'll be impressed by that. But they won't. I mean, you could ask any person that is going to the concert for the first time, say, yeah, what is one of the things that the promoter said about him that you remember? They would never remember that. It's a throwaway line. What would you like them to say? That they heard the music. That's what I want them to remember, how it sounded, how they felt when we played. That's the only thing that matters. What would you put on the promotional bill then if it's not three-time Grammy Award winner? I wouldn't put anything. I mean, the promotional bill. Um what would, you, what would you like people to see about you in three words? I wouldn't want them to see anything. I want them to hear. I want them to know that um, they're not going to hear anything like what we do from anybody else. It's just us. We do it. You know, we've decided that we're going to play jazz by learning how the old dead people do it, and we're going to emulate that. Have you found now that others are emulating what you've done? No. no. Most are not. Some. Most are not. Because it requires a different skill. Hearing is harder than knowing. So again, you have to be willing to be bad at something for a long time to get good at it. Transactional humans don't aren't comfortable with that. With the idea that they're going to be bad at something for a long. I have a student. I told him to learn a solo by ear. And I told him all the reasons. When you learn a solo by ear, you are teaching yourself how to hear sound through the voice of a great musician like Lester Young. It's not about the notes. I tell you to learn it and you analyze the notes. The notes are pointless. There's only 12 of them. There's no magic to that. The magic is where he places the note. That's the magic. No book can show you that. You have to hear that. He's really bad at it. 
So after three weeks, we're in the class. And he says, yeah, you keep talking about this, learning it by ear, man. I can't do it. You know, some people just, you know, some people aren't meant to have that. And I got to cut him off. And I said, how the hell would you know? I didn't use the word hell, but you, could, you, you have an imagination. How the hell would you know? You're going to sit here at 21, try to tell me what people are like and what people are not like. How long does it take a baby to learn how to walk? Do you know? Probably not. I think the average is eight months before the brain finishes the code that allows the baby to walk. And if you've ever been around kids, the really bright ones can't wait to start walking. And they're just frustrated as hell. They're crying. They're moving around. They're trying to get up. They can't get up. It's not time. If they had your sensibility, they'd just give up and say, carry me. This, this thing's not working. I said, it takes a baby eight months to learn how to walk. You've been trying this for 21 days. And who do you think you are? Your brain is writing a code for something you've never done in your life. You've been doing it wrong for 21 years. And you think it's going to fix itself in 21 days and then it doesn't happen. So you quit. All right. Good luck with that. Yeah, I never thought about it that way. I said, you never thought at all. That's one thing you haven't done. You haven't thought. I've been telling you all this since school started. You have to be willing to sound bad for a long time to get good. And you can't take it. So what you're going to do is go back to what you know, even though it sucks, because it makes you feel better about you. Feel free. I get paid either way. So this idea that, that, that you can get people to do that, it's hard for a lot of people. It's hard for a lot of people. It's hard for a lot of musicians because you go to school and all they do is teach harmony. And they talk about music in a very mathematical way. And then the stuff we do, the math doesn't apply. I mean, if you're one of those people, you don't know how to get to what it is that we do. So you create these barriers and say, well, you know, those guys are good at what they do. You know, we're, we're part of the new movement here. There's a new jazz sound. According to whom? Said, if there's a new jazz sound, it can't be, that can't be declared from the people who can't do the old jazz sound. They have a vested interest in the new sound being the new sound. They are not qualified to say that this is a new sound. It's just a bad version of the old sound. <laughs> it's not new. There's nothing new about that. People have played like that since the 40s. If you were looking back at your younger self when you started out, is there a bit of advice you'd like to give yourself? Um, yes and no. I'd say, you know, take it more seriously and practice. But if I had, then I probably wouldn't be practicing now. My brother took it very seriously and he's bogged down with a lot of composition work and all these other things. He doesn't pray. He used to practice three hours a day, rain or shine from the time he was 12 to the time he was about 26 or 27. There's nutrition to that after a while. It wears you out. And uh, I don't have any young people distractions anymore. What else would I be doing? Playing golf. I'm too old to run. Too old to play sports, physical contact sports. I practice an instrument and I play golf and I, you know, hang out with my kids. And so I wouldn't want a 21 year old kid doing that. So I think that all of the things that I did, some of it stupid and reckless, some of it was just, it led me to this point. I get that, that, you know, if you're going to go back in time, then you have to go back with that wild 21 year old 
sent kinetic energy where that, you know, that craziness. I had a good run as, as a kid though. I mean, I, I did things that was never part of my playbook, playing with pop stars and doing TV shows and all this stuff. So that was fun. It was great stuff. And it, it led me here. And I don't, and I don't, not that I'm, I'm an old man. I don't, I don't look back and say, you know, oh, you know, you know, like old people really hate young people. I like young people. You know, I know how clueless they are. I was them once, you know, I just, it's, it's, this is, this is the way it goes. You know, this is the way it goes, but I'm, I'm really, you know, happy with what I'm doing. I wake up every morning. There's a purpose there and it's not sidetracked by youth. Is there someone in the saxophone world who you consider to be a great contributor to the development of the saxophone? I never, I don't think in those terms. I mean, that's, that's a hindsight question. I don't think it's a current question because, I mean, I'm not really about the instrument that way. You know, I don't, it's the sound of the instrument. But, I mean, when I come to these, these, these competitions, I mean, these conventions, this is a convention, really. I mean, even hearing the students play, like hearing those young kids today in the Zahir Quartet, man, was brilliant. It's inspiring to hear that. And their professor, whose name escapes me right now, but I, I've, I've said hello to him a couple of times. I mean, his, sax, his soprano saxophone playing is brilliant. And then when I see him, I'm going to tell him, it was great to hear him play. Uh, Jean Denis. Jean Denis. That's him. Thank you. That's it. Jean Denis. And he was incredible. He was, I mean, it was great to listen to. And, you know, I think that, you know, Carrie Kaufman is great. Deborah Rickmeyer is great. I mean, Jackie Lamar, people dedicate their lives to helping kids. I mean, there's a mission out there through the instrument. You're teaching these kids. Some of them will not even become musicians. Some of them won't be teachers. They'll go do something else. You know, my guy Harvey Patel really like, took good care of me. And then some of the guys like, you know, Arnold Bornkamp has been really good with like hearing little technical problems and saying, you should try this. I mean, all kinds of people come up and give me little tidbits of advice because they know I want to learn this stuff. You know, Otis Murphy's being great. I mean, it's, you know, and there's all these great players. I mean, I play with Prism. Those guys are awesome. You know, this it's just a blast to, I'm, I'm just having a great time. I'm having a great time and, and, and it's nice to be around a, a bunch of musicians when it's not really about me. I'm just kind of hanging out. You seem to be doing these little chamber projects. Is that something where you can join into a, an established group and participate? Yeah, and not take somebody else's slot, yeah. But they ask me to do it. I'm actually seeing more and more pieces where it'll be a quartet or an existing established group plus one. Right. I mean, I like it. I mean, it, and, and like I said, they asked me to do it. I wouldn't say, hey, you know, I, I want to, you know, do a song because I would come here and just, I would be content to be here and just listen because in the preparation for this, I mean, there's all this music that I don't get to hear because I'm doing these other things. I mean, Arno was playing at 8.15 and on the, on the night of the semifinal World Cup match between Croatia and England. So the place was manic. And I finished the three performances and the plan was for me to play, to rehearse uh, from like 7 to 7.50, 7.30, get back, hear Arno. 
by the time we finished with Connie's concert, Connie Frigo's concert, another great saxophone player with beautiful sound and is doing great things at the University of Georgia. Um, people talking and handshake. I didn't get out of the building until 7.15. And at 7.15, all these people were rushing to the square because the match was starting at 8. Not a taxi in sight. My brain's tired. My body's tired. My back hurts. I've been standing up for nine hours. By the time I get to the venue, it's 8, 8.10. We rehearsed two songs. It's 8.30. By the time I get back to the hotel, it's 8.45. I'm like, I'm going to bed. I just... You know, I really wanted to hear Arno. And then my friend Victor Goins was in town. And he said, well, man, let's just go to the Selma party for watch, watch the end of the game. And then I'm walking this way and then I see Arno. And I said, yeah, man, how was the concert? I wanted to make it. My life sucks right now. But I, I, I love coming here and hearing, you know, great players play. I, you know, one of the things I learned growing up in southern United States is very similar to being around Australians. You you answer questions by using stories as metaphors to answer the question. It's a very Southern American thing, and it's a very English thing in certain parts of England, and it's definitely a thing in Australia. The uh, <laughs> the, the simile <laughs> in Australia. Oh, that's like a, it's like yeah, okay. I, I'm gonna love this place. <laughs> you were in the Australia. A couple of months ago. Yeah, not even. Six weeks, maybe. It was a while ago since I saw you, but I remember you saying with the travel, like when it's so far, yeah, it can, it's rough, can be man. difficult. It's rough. But, but you can. We had, we, had, we had a weird anomaly. We actually recorded in Melbourne. Right. Because we had five days off. We had a, a tour in Japan that kind of went belly up. So we were in Korea. We were supposed to go Korea, Japan, Melbourne. Japan disappeared. And I said, well, hell, let's just go to Melbourne. Let's make a record. And the guys were like, well, you know, Sydney's warm. I said, Sydney's not where you make records. Sydney's where you just hang out. We're going to make the record in Melbourne, where the art where the art is. We're going to Melbourne. And everybody was like, yeah, Melbourne. Melbourne was happening. I mean, it was cold, unfortunately. But musicians playing all over town, local guys, little clubs. And we were all over the place. It was great. We had a good time. So you've made an enormous contribution to music in all mm. sorts of different ways and in a chameleon-like way, different fields. What do you see for yourself over the next couple of decades? I never saw any of this coming. I've been, yeah, I, I never really, because even they would ask me that, like in the 80s when, you know, it was a pop topic. So what's next for you? I said, well, if you had asked me this question in 84, I said, certainly would have said, would not have said that in 1985, I'll be doing um, a world tour and a recording with an internationally renowned pop star. So... That's where I kind of leave that one alone. Like, you know, my job is to prepare for all inevitabilities. And when they show up, either we can do them or we can't. But uh, I'm at that age where those kind of things are done. You know, I'm almost 60. So, you know, the popular culture thing is a young person thing. And, and that's fine. So I'm just playing music, you know, playing with whom, whomever intrigues me or whatever shows up and there's there there are people out there there are composers and players that are out there and i don't know them and they don't know me and we'll bump into each other that's that's kind of what happened here i mean this, this has been a, a great gift to me you know hanging out with all these you know saxophonists and uh 
meeting composers. It's, it's been it's been awesome. Good on you. Good on you, mate. <laughs> it's good. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Just before you go, a quick reminder to let you know that show notes, any links, and a full text transcript are also available. It would mean a lot to me if you could leave a review for the show by visiting barrysacks.com forward slash iTunes. You can subscribe for a new episode each week. And thanks again for joining me and my guests on Barry Sachs Show.